You are listening to the Dark Fantastic Podcast. The Great Will Murray is one of the most prolific authors working today, having written more than 50 novels and short story collections, including tales featuring Sherlock Holmes, The Shadow, Doc Savage, and many more. He is a master of many genres and styles, and on this episode he joins Ahmed Khalifa to talk about his work and his latest book, Dark Avenger, The Strange Saga of the Shadow. I read that you first discovered The Shadow when you started listening to the Orson Welles radio shows, and then you started collecting the, the, the Shadow uh, pulps and, and the paperbacks, along with Doc Savage. And it's obvious from your writing about The Shadow and about Doc Savage and your writing, uh, you, you wrote fiction and you write fiction about them as well, not just nonfiction, not just uh, history, that these characters and this style of writing really appeals to you. So I, I want to understand what, what, what really, you know, attracts you to to these kinds of, of, of characters and to pulp fiction in general? I, I suspect part of it is growing up on DC and Marvel comics and I liked those kind of heroes. And when I started to look for um, prose stories to read that were like that, um, Doc Savage was something I encountered. The Shadow started to be reprinted in paperback about a year after I read my first Doc Savage. No, the same year. And um, I was familiar with him, not only from the radio reprints and the re re repeats in the early 60s, but there was, there was a Shadow comic book I read and there was one paperback I read that wasn't by Walter Gibson. And so when, when, when I encountered those characters, I think the appeal was the same appeal as the comic book superheroes I grew up on, but on a more realistic level, both in terms of the stories and, are and you in terms still of the characters. The, uh, I, I think you, you mentioned, or maybe I read that you are the executor of the Lester Dent estate, right? The literary agent of the uh, Lester Dent estate. Um, yes, since 1979, if I'm not mistaken. So for, for quite a number of years. So how did that come about? Well, I was visiting Mrs. Dent in 1978-79, uh, in somewhere around there. And I had arranged the deal to um, get the Lost Doc Savage novel into print, which was printed as the Red Spider. And I had suggested to Mrs. Dent, there's a lot of Lester Dent material that could be reprinted. And, uh, and I don't know whether I volunteered or she suggested or her lawyer suggested, but I remember sitting in her kitchen, uh, her kitchen table with her lawyer, Jim Valbracht, who is, you know, I'm still in touch with, and, and her, and we hammered out an agreement where I would be the literary agent and I would, I would try to sell his stories and market them, which included, ultimately, we didn't know it at the time, but included, you know, me writing new Doc Savage novels because as the agent, uh, I was able to cut a deal to use his unpublished, 
outlines and manuscripts to write new dark savages. So it was it was it was on and off, while not super lucrative for anybody compared to mass market publishing. On the levels we were able to operate, I was able to give Mrs. Dent, who was on Social Security at that point in her life, uh, an extra stream of income when it came in. I mean, sometimes a year or so would go by, we wouldn't sell anything, and then suddenly we would sell a bunch of things. And how many um, Doc Savage novels have you written so far? 22 Docs and one Pet Savage. And do you still find that there are corners of the mythology that you haven't explored? Yes. In, I wouldn't say mythology, but after I wrote my last doc, I, f- I rediscovered an outline that when I, for a published doc, Savage, that when I looked at it, I said, Lester Dent just threw this away and wrote a completely different story around the same idea. This would make a great doc, Savage. I wish I had realized that when I was writing them. So in, in terms of the mythology, I always like to um, put Doc and his men in situations that maybe Lester Dent couldn't or didn't or didn't think about. And, you know, when I thought about things to do that Dent didn't do, well, there's never been a Doc Savage adventure set in Australia or India, you know. Uh, there have been Doc Savages set in New Zealand and in, you know, fictitious or semi-fictitious places near India. But those are two large uh, countries that Doc has never set foot on. And there's got to be a story that fits those locales. But I never got around to that because I never, I, 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 I don't, don't currently have a, a contract to write more Doc Savages. Do you think that people who are working in the entertainment industry and uh, the publishing industry, do you think they really understand and or value the contribution of characters like The Shadow and Doc Savage to popular culture? Because when I talk to people about, you know, trying to excite them and get them to read the, the original uh, pulp novels of Lester Dent and especially Walter B. Gibson, who's my, one of my favorite pulp writers of all time, I get the sense that people, you know, from different ages, not just the younger readers, but people from different ages who actually profess to be experts about popular culture and comic books and so on, they don't really know how much has been lifted from the mythology of the shadow and the mythology of Doc Savage, like the Fortress of Solitude, for example, in later characters like the Batman and Superman and so on. So do you think, do you think there is some lack of, of understanding or knowledge about the contribution of, of, of these characters to popular culture? Oh, absolutely. Because, you know, these stories were in their heyday, what, 70 and 80 years ago. And in paperback, Doc Savage was in his heyday in reprints in the 60s, 70s and into the 80s. Even the 80s is a long time ago for some people. I mean, these were very popular characters. Uh, The New York Times columnist, uh, Russell Baker, once made a list of what he called Americana 
that doesn't exist anymore. And he named things like the Saturday Evening Post, Doc Savage, and the Shadow Magazine. He thought they were central to what Americans were about in um, Once Upon a Time. And you can't expect in a world with so much media and so many new authors and so many new characters, the Stephen Kings and the Dean R. Kuntzes and, and you name it, uh, you can't expect um, everybody to know about this. I've written about it extensively, but not necessarily in the mass market. On you, You'll find this information on the web. People will do columns about it and stuff. And that's interesting, uh, but it's not. It, it's 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 not central to what's going on now and what's been going on for a while. I mean, the shadow is well known. Doc Savage not so well known, but Doc Savage was more popular with readers, just not much, not more popular with um, what's the word for it? General. Do you think there's gen, the general some audience. reticence on the part of? People who are working in the entertainment industry, comic books, maybe who, who people who write comic books, comic book artists and screenwriters and so on to admit the influence of these characters and this style of, of writing on their work. Well, I think um, if people were in those who are willing to cite their interests, I don't their their influences, I'm sure they would admit it. But many don't have those influences. I think we have to understand these characters have become rather dated, even if the stories are still compelling. And you know, they're 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 of interest today the way Sherlock Holmes is of interest and Dracula's interest. People still read the Sherlock Holmes stories, uh, but not necessarily in the numbers they used to. But there's still an appeal. There's always an appeal with retro fiction or fiction set in the past. But it's a narrower appeal for the average person who wants to turn on the TV or read a book and read about people today who think like people today and have the experiences of people today. But I, I, I don't know. You know, I've been around a long time. So there's been a lot of uh, waves of, of, of media writers, directors, actors, uh, screenwriters who come along and, you know, 30 years ago, a lot of people would point to Doc Savage as a thing that should be in cartoons and movies and TV shows. That may be less true now because the generations that have grown up on Marvel comics and DC comics and Star Wars and Star Trek, those are their touchstones. Remember that the, 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 the paperback industry stopped reprinting Tarzan, Doc Savage, and many things like that around 1990 when, when conglomerates bought the major publishers and said, we must only publish bestsellers going forward. So, you know, Doc Savage ceased in paperback, The Destroyer uh, temporarily ceased and was, was revived by a Canadian publisher. And you, you, did, you don't see Tarzan or Edgar Rice Burroughs books or old pulp stories and reprints in paperback anymore with rare exceptions such as H.P. Lovecraft. Um, they, they were always reliable sellers, but the, the, new, the new publishers wanted hits, big hits, 
Whereas in the, the traditional publishers pre-1990, they understood that the millions of copies that they sold of Doc Savage provided the profits that they could pay and subsidize new writers who would become the blockbuster writers of the future. So it's a different business model. Do you think that eBooks uh, can fill the gap uh, left by paperbacks in terms of presenting and making available uh, these older books and these uh, pulp novels and these characters? Absolutely. I'm not sure why it hasn't been done, but absolutely, you could put every Doc Savage and Shadow uh, on, on Amazon, Kindle, and whatever, Nook, and whatever else as an ebook. And I'm sure there would be a steady sale. My, my Doc Savage ebooks are, you know, still selling, uh, not as they were when they were new. And they never sell as well as when they're new, but certainly people, I noticed this in my books. Uh, my first Doc Savage was Python Island, 1990, but my first new Doc Savage was um, The Desert Demons, which was published in 2011. And that's, that's the book I list as number one in the series, even though it wasn't number one because we didn't start reprinting my old Doc Savages until later. That's still my bestseller simply because it has a number one on it. People perceive that as the beginning of the series, even though it's not a first book in terms of the chronology of the characters. And it remains my bestseller because it's an entry-level book. People will, will, will usually order that first. And if they like it, they keep buying and keep reading. So uh, I know from my own experiences with eBooks and trade paperbacks, that um, there are always new people discovering Doc Savage, and that I would assume there'd be new people discovering the shadow if they were shadow ebooks. But my first access to, to uh, a complete shadow novel was through the Black Mask uh, website. Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. Because they had, I can't remember, I think they had almost most of the shadow novels for free. You could read them online. And it was just an eye opening experience to me because. At that time, my, my only exposure to the shadow was through the Alec Baldwin movie, which I went to see in theaters when it came out. I was just a kid, right? But I was blown away by by the character, and uh, and since then, the only way I, I, I can get my hands on a shadow novel is uh, through uh, friends uh, who have who have copies from around the world, or um, by by buying, finding online copies that are reasonably priced of the uh, uh, Belmont uh, reprints. So it's still hard to find uh, shadow novels and Doc Savage novels, of course, other than the Doc Savage novels that you wrote, which are uh, available. But do you think that situation will change in the near future in terms of the older paperbacks, the original ones? Well, I, I, you know, I, I, I suspect not, but I would hope otherwise. You know, uh, as you know, Condé Nast has licensed Doc Savage in the shadow in new novels, updated novels through James Patterson. And uh, I, I think there's a feeling that for those characters to be viable, especially to, to, go, to transfer into media, they need to be updated. Uh, and I can't disagree with that because 
the generations that are coming up now won't won't watch old black and white movies and they're becoming less and less um sympathetic to you know books or movies that take place in their grandparents or great grandparents time the thing i always comment on is in an old movie or a novel if someone is driving around and needs to make a telephone call they gotta pull into a pharmacy and go to a phone booth well we drive around with our phones in our pockets and a private number that's unique to us um and i think that's you know and there are no computers back then and cars were different uh and planes were slower and I, I just think just as a previous generation became disenchanted with the Western because they couldn't relate to riding around on horses, firing six guns when there were machine guns, you know, available. I, I just think it's hard. I think it's a, it's, it's a narrower group of people who can get into the mindset that says, I can read a Sherlock Holmes or a shadow novel because I'm, I, I get that time period. I understand that time period. I understand its limitations. And it's interesting to see how these characters were in these days, in those days. So I think, I think not, but I, you know, as you said, if there were only eBooks, we would find out pretty damn quick. But I just want to add, uh, you know, a few comments from, from, from the perspective of someone like me, because I, w- I wasn't born in the United States. I wasn't born in an English speaking country. And, uh, and, and definitely, uh, you know, I, 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 you know, I was born in the eighties, so I'm, I, I wasn't, I, I had no connection whatsoever to the, uh, to the era of, uh, you know, the great depression and, and the era that these books came from, but regardless of, or in spite of the language barrier, in spite of the so-called cultural barrier, when I read these books and when I watched uh, the movie, uh, I just fell in love with them, to be honest. It's just the, the things that people think, that some people think, some uh, maybe, I don't know, uh, people in the business, I mean, who, who make these business decisions, think there are barriers. They aren't really, because uh, that's why I have a lot of problems with the current, current cultural mood swing that we are going through because i don't really believe in the idea of that you need to you need to come back you need to come from a certain background or a certain era or or whatever in order to appreciate the older stuff maybe the victorian literature the sherlock holmes the shadow the pulps the americana all that stuff i love all that stuff and and uh, and of course i i later on i i got to live abroad and i got to travel the world but that was after I fell in love with these books and after I fell in love with these genres. So I think that people who are working in this business, I'm 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 not talking about the creatives, of course, I'm talking about the business people. Yeah. They don't really understand that uh, when you fall in love with a a genre or when you fall, fall in love with a certain type of fiction, it's it's just, it's just love, you know. It's just you fall in love with something, and uh, these barriers are transcended by the imagination. Yes, they, they are. are. Just 
So, so, and I always give myself as an example because, uh, because you know, I, I was born in Egypt and I grew up in Egypt. I, the first time I started traveling, I was in my teens, and uh, and then I was I I I I studied in London when I was in my twenties in the UK. But before all that, I actually chose, you know, as someone who was living in in Egypt, I I actually chose these pieces of fiction. I actually chose them. And I read them and I collected them and it never even crossed my mind the things that people think would be barriers. Mm -hmm. So imagine me as an example and then imagine someone who was actually born in the United States or born in an English-speaking country. The barriers would would be much, much, much less when when they are being exposed to these books, even if they are younger readers or, or whatever. So I, I, I think these barriers, uh, although they exist, I understand the business reality of it, but they don't exist as much as people think. Well, there's another side to this. And the side is for many years, let's look at the history of Doc Savage and the Shadow in, in media the last 50 years. There's almost nothing there. There was a flop Doc Savage movie and a somewhat disappointing shadow movie. When I say disappointing, it didn't do well enough to spawn sequels, which was the plan. And I have heard anecdotally that various uh, people in the animation business have, have floated shadow or Doc Savage TV programs and Condé Nast wants too much money for their budget, you know? and one of the things that happened inadvertently, you know, Condé Nast has every right to say, this is our price. They're a big company. They're used to making a lot of money, but they priced themselves out of, of certain media like TV shows and animation. And the unfortunate side effect of that, which could not have been foreseen, is the fact that when they were like holding up the shadow as we need a million dollars if you want to do a shadow cartoon tune. DC and Marvel comics were saying, you want to pay 200000 Sure, let's do that deal. And consequently, we had Spider-Man cartoons and Batman cartoons and Superman cartoons and X-Men cartoons and you name it. This put those characters before a lot more eyeballs than comic books or any other kind of book. And consequently, increase the value of those properties because they were exposed uh, to people at formative ages. And so when there were Spider-Man movies, people knew who Spider-Man was. You didn't have to sell the character. They saw him on TV growing up. The last several generations have not seen The Shadow or Doc Savage on their TV screen on any level except repeats of the two movies. And of course, I did a, a Doc Savage radio script with Roger Rittner in the 1980s, but that was radio. It doesn't really have a huge impact. So what happened is that characters that were less popular, less significant, but more modern, such as Spider-Man, such as Batman and others, are have, have, have become, you know, major cultural and corporate um, icons, whereas Doc and the Shadow have receded into the background and into the past because they weren't exploited as much. 
So they're handicapped in terms of someone wanting to mount a Doc Savage movie or a, or, or a shadow film uh, because there's, there's the brand recognition is not as strong as it might have been 30 or 40 years ago and certainly not as strong as it might have been in the 30s or 40s when those magazines sold well. So it's an unfortunate side effect of Condé Nast saying, you know, we don't want to do a deal until, unless we get a price that we feel is worth our effort. Because, you know, there's always the risk if you sell somebody a property and they mangle it, um, such as was done with Doc Savage, that it kills the property for the next filmmaker who comes along who might not mangle the property. So, you know, when they, they put a high price on it, it's to make sure that the party is serious and will, will follow through. So it's a two-edged sword. But the unfortunate side effect is that Marvel and DC characters are now major, major motion picture properties and, you know, other kinds of properties, toy, video game, uh, whatever properties. And Doc and the Shadow are a hard sell because they're seen as part of uh, relics of the past when they didn't have to be. They could have been updated long before. They could have been marketed much more. Um, well, it's always a risk, you know. You know, I'm not criticizing Condé Nast because, as I say, if you if you lower the bar just to get something on the TV screen, you might end up with a mess. You know, it's always a gamble. Yeah, I, I actually I agree with you, and maybe the way to go, and of course, it's all wishful thinking. Now we are just, you know hoping for the best, uh, I think maybe podcasts would be the way to go because podcasts seem to appeal to younger uh, audiences. And uh, the same thing happened with the Batman, the animated series that Bruce mm-hmm. Tim uh, co-created because they, they were trying to get it back in one form or another, but uh, it's not really happening. So they decided to to do a podcast that would be a continuation of the series with Kevin Conroy as the, uh, you know, to come back as the voice of Batman, Bruce Wayne. I don't mm-hmm. know if that's still on because, of course, sadly, we, we lost yeah, Kevin we lost Conroy. Him, yeah. Conroy yeah. Maybe, the, maybe the shadow could be done uh, as a podcast written by people who actually understand the character and who would set it in the original timeline or in the original era. And uh, maybe, maybe that would be it what do you think of that it's basically an, an an audio drama like the like they did with batman there are i think two batman dramas now on spotify or one i i, I can't remember they can do something similar with the shadow and doc savage and and i think uh and because i know because i've, I've dabbled a bit you know with uh, and I've, i i know people who produce podcasts and i try to keep you know abreast of things when it comes to uh, radio and podcasts and things of that nature because I just love radio and I love the idea of podcasts and drama podcasts and I know that of course there are there's tons of money to be made with podcasts now especially I mean drama podcasts or audio dramas because they are very cheap to produce and with with an established property uh, like The Shadow, which, of course, I know it's not, of course, the, the Shadow isn't as popular or Doc Savage isn't as popular or well-known as something from DC or Marvel, but it is a cheap way and um, an almost risk-free way of doing it to introduce it to young adults and people in the 
quote unquote, you know, desirable age bracket when it comes to uh, making money? I think it's a uh, it's a worthwhile experiment. I think the problem is Condé Nast is now invested in the new versions of the characters, the updated versions. They may not want the old versions out there, but they may. I, I don't know. Uh, I would say that um, I think uh, <clears throat> I think it would be great if these characters could be perpetuated as they originally were for the audience that would be that would have an appeal. And I've been saying for a few years now, we were more than a dozen years into major uh, superhero motion pictures, everything cycles in Hollywood. If, if superhero fatigue should start to creep in, what's the alternative? Well, maybe characters who are super heroic but don't have incredible powers might be the next uh, potential wave because the Western is dead, private eye stories are outdated, and a lot of other genres, you know, come and go and aren't that strong. <clears throat> but Doc Sab, you know, Indiana Jones is about to become another motion picture. And that's, that's a, a pulp kind of hero. He doesn't have any abilities that are extraordinary, but he's an extraordinary individual in terms of the adventures he has. So I, I would not be shocked if, if at some point people are looking around in the, in, the, in the media business, what can we do that's like superheroes, but they don't have, you know, powers because people are getting tired of that. Well, Doc in the Shadow and Indiana Jones and several other, James Bond is, is another example. People who have the ability to have, go through adventures that are on the scale of superhero movies, but who aren't particularly superhuman. Before we move on, the last thing I just want to follow up on what, what you, you're saying is uh, I, I read the, uh, the James Patterson um, version uh, of uh, of the shadow and uh, of course I'm, i haven't read the doc savage one and i probably won't because it's the same uh, it's the same co-writer it's the james patterson and someone else uh, and yep. of course their approach uh, i don't want to say anything bad because actually uh, i think that james patterson wrote a lot of entertaining books and i go back to many of his books you know i like some of his books and some of his style and he has contributed I think a ton to actually getting people to read. People don't give him enough credit in terms right, of how many, yeah, how many people actually were fell in love with reading through James Patterson. So I, you know, I give him credit for that, and I love many, many. I just read one of his uh, books recently. So I don't like all of his stuff, but I give him credit, and I do like some of his stuff. But the the uh, his take on uh, on on the shadow. Uh, was just uh, you know uh, vanilla you know it was just uh, it was just a, a, a bland kind of middle of the road uh, take uh, that I personally as a, as a fan of the shadow of course that's that's a given I didn't I didn't really appreciate but also from the feedback I got from people whose first exposure to the shadow was through the Patterson novel uh it failed to do what it was supposed to do it didn't really make people fall in love with the character at all so uh i don't think the updated way is working at least in the way that it has been done now so 
that's one thing I want to talk about. And also, uh, sorry, that's one thing I wanted to mention. The other thing, following up on what you were saying and the idea of the need, the, 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 some uh, Condé Nast and some of these uh, studios think that the updating is the way to go. Uh, we need to keep in mind something like Perry Mason, for example, mm-hmm. on HBO, which wasn't updated and was very successful. I, I, I want to say that updating these characters is a good idea, but it's the execution that makes it work or not work. And from the feedback I've heard, the execution has fallen short, uh, which is very unfortunate. But, you know, I, I, I think the choices made are commercial choices and not creative choices here. And I certainly I don't see the the shadow as a science fiction character. Doc Savage might have fit that storyline better because he is a science fiction character. But uh, I, I, the worrisome thing about the Patterson Shadow novel is every first book is or should get the audience eager for the second book, and the second book would sell the third book as well as the first book for those who haven't discovered the first book yet, and on and on. And this is at least a three book series, if not more. And if if as many people were disappointed as I've heard and you've heard, that's worrisome in terms of sales for the second book and the third book. But of course, the second book can turn a corner and, you know, raise the bar. I just don't know, you know, whether it will or not, because the premise is what it is. They can't change the premise at this point. And I think a lot of people didn't care for the premise, didn't feel the shadow fit into that kind of story, which I can't argue with because I have to agree with it. It's 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 a, it's a difficult fit for the shadow. Um, <clears throat> the Doc Savage, you know, I've barely read any reviews that seems to be better received at least as of the first week. I haven't seen a review since the first week. But I'm not hearing the, the, the extreme negativity about the Doc Savage novel that I heard about the Shadow novel, but I haven't been keeping up either. Yeah, I haven't read it. I might give it a go uh, later on, but we'll see. Um, the sense I have is it's, 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 it's better executed. Yeah, you know, maybe maybe because uh, in the in the Patterson Shadow novel there was an over reliance on fantasy and science fiction elements, and there wasn't really you you didn't get the sense that uh, the, the the people behind the book uh, did their homework when, when when you know they they didn't really understand the mythology of the character. It was just. It was just like someone who had listened to a couple of radio shows, maybe, and uh, and who had like a very casual kind of 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 of, of you know acquaintance with the character, uh, but because they didn't really focus on any of the things that made the shadow uh, so special, it wasn't really understandable for someone going in you know reading about the character for the first time what the you know what the fuss was about because he was just another kind of he was like bruce wayne and you know it was just the concept wasn't very clear but anyway i want to talk about your work uh because uh, because i like your work much better (laughs) so i want to talk about your books and uh, i want to talk about doc savage the the sinister shadow 
which I enjoyed so, so much. And uh, I just wanted to, because you, you, you talk about how you, you, you went about writing it a little bit, uh, you know, in, in, the, in the end uh, of the book. But for people who don't know what I'm talking about, the sinister shadow or Doc Savage, the sinister shadow is, uh, is, a, is an official uh, continuation for both characters. And uh, I don't want to give away anything uh, of the plot, but basically in, in that uh, novel, uh, a situation comes about and a villain surfaces that uh, forces Doc Savage and the shadow to join forces and try to combat that villain, uh, the funeral director. I just want to mention to you that there is a scene uh, which takes place uh, in that book, takes place in the shadow sanctum or the shadow's lair, in which the shadow comes face to face with Doc Savage and a battle takes place. And uh, I just want to say that that scene alone is worth the price of admission. Well, thank you. Thank yeah, th that scene is just, if you are a fan of the, of the two characters, it's just that scene is just so well uh, thought out and so well written and so uh, mysterious. There's so much mystery. And, it's, uh, and for, because I know that the two characters are very different and the writing style of Lester Dent and Walter B. Gibson, uh, the writing styles were very different. Just to, to pull off that scene, that action scene, for fans was just amazing. To me, that really sums up what the book achieves. So I want to ask you how you, because I know that you are a fan of both characters uh, and both writers, how did you go about trying to maybe outline or come up with a concept that would make this idea of a Doc Savage, the shadow crossover uh, actually feasible to do? Well, I've had a general idea involving some of these characters going back to my Bantam books days with Doc Savage, because I thought after a few years of Doc Savage, like we could get the rights to do the shadow and do a crossover. So I had a rough idea. And when I got to the point where I was able to get the shadow rights, one of the first things I did is I acquired a copy of the carbon of Lester Dent's only shadow novel, The Golden Vulture. And I was surprised and excited to discover there was a draft that I didn't know about that was radically different and full of wonderful scenes with the shadow. And I said, this is great stuff maybe I can incorporate some of those scenes into, into my book. So I kind of built my plot. I didn't outline the book. I just created a premise. I kind of built my plot around that draft in part um, because I wanted to salvage those scenes and I knew it would, it would lend authenticity to the story if some of the chapters were actually by Lester Dent. And it wasn't hard to change the golden vulture into into the funeral director. Um, and one of the things that impressed me is that Lester Dent gave the shadow all these gadgets that not only the shadow never had in the regular novels, but Doc Savage never had. 
And I said, why didn't they use some of these in Doc Savage? These are good ideas. So uh, I built it around. So there's something like 22 chapters in this book that are essentially me polishing the Lester Dent. And it's, it, was, it was a wonderful miracle because it enabled me to write the book much quicker. It enabled me to get into the Lester Dent writing style and enabled me to write with a 1933-34 sensibility because this story was written in 32. And I, always, I was introduced to Walter Gibson's shadow novels through Bantam books. So that was the first three and then a smattering of the others. So I was always interested in that early shadow that lived in this gritty de early depression New York with its early depression underworld. So this Doc Savage novel is more or less set in the shadows world, which is why some people say it reads more like a shadow novel than a Doc Savage novel. Well, it's Doc Savage operating in the, in the Walter B. Gibson milieu that was created in 1931 and 32. And um, I just love that, you know? And so I was able to, you know, salvage some, uh, some material that would never see the light of day and do something that was unique. Not only was this a unique meeting of Doc and the Shadow, but the Shadow was doing things he didn't do in his own, uh, his own magazine, having gadgets and devices and such. As a, as a fan of the Shadow and as someone who read a lot of Shadow novels, uh, when I was reading it, I think the best thing I can say about, about your book is that, uh, of course, it was a bit difficult to understand uh, when exactly was your, was your novel set in the shadow timeline, but I, I guessed it was a bit early because there was still talk of the radio show. So I guess you placed it in early in, uh, earlier in, in the shadow timeline, right? It's, it's in 1933. So it's, it's it would, because Doc is operating as a public figure, it has to be 1933. So it's 1933 for both of those characters. Yeah, and the best thing I can say uh, was that since I wasn't really sure of the timeline, there were scenes in the book and, and instances in the book that I thought, well, is, is, is Will gonna unmask the shadow finally? Is, he, is, is, is this going to be the, the, the final, uh, you know, adventure for the shadow? Because you push, him, you push him so much, you put him so much through the ringer and uh, Doc Savage gives him a run for his money, basically. So by the the last third of the book, you begin to wonder, is, is this gonna be the last shadow adventure? And then of course things happen and I don't wanna give it away, but just, I love the way, the way you, you, you tie things up and the way the, the characters come to somewhat of an understanding by the end of the book. And uh, I think it's just, uh, just, uh, just terrific entertainment. And, and the best thing also, or, I guess there are many best, quote unquote, best things I can say about the book, but I think one of the also uh, uh, very appealing things about, uh, about your book, Doc Savage, The Sinister Shadow, 
is that uh, the thing that your book pulls off, uh, it, pull, it pulls off something that I think is very difficult, is that even for someone who is new to both characters, because I w- when I read your book, I was new to Doc Savage. I wasn't that familiar with his mythology. You can get into the book and it serves as a very good introduction to both of the, uh, bo- both of the characters. So you yes, can... That's, re- yes, that's because it's early in their career and they're, they're still getting started, the Doc more than the Shadow. But I, I did a very early version of Doc Savage where he's essentially still new on the scene. And um, that, and that enables the reader to, um, to sort of acquaint himself with the character without the need of a lot of backstory. Yeah, so uh, I really think that uh, since the book is readily available and is much easier to get than the original Shadow novels, I think if someone wants to get introduced to Doc Savage or The Shadow, I think your book, Doc Savage, The Sinister Shadow, is just the perfect introduction. So I just, wanna, I just wanted to say, to say that and how much I enjoyed your book. Uh, and are there any plans for you to write another uh, book about the shadow? Well, I've just released my my nonfiction book, my second nonfiction book in the last year and a half, The Dark, Dark Avenger, The Strange Saga of the Shadow. This is a rewrite and expansion of my 1980 book, The Duende History of the Shadow magazine, which I wrote in college. And uh, I don't have any plans for shadow novels. I would love to do another doc where the shadow is a, uh, is a character. Uh, but, you know, Dark Avenger is the more or less sequel or companion volume to last year's Master of Mystery, The Rise of the Shadow. Only this is a book uh, covering the, the, the history of the character it, more or less in the magazine. Whereas Master of Mystery was a collection of articles and interviews about the shadow in his radio and pulp and other incarnations uh but yeah i you know if if i had the opportunity to write a shadow novel i would have to stop and think about what's worth doing because the world doesn't need another shadow novel of the of the type that walter gibson uh wrote because he wrote so many and there's a lot of them are great what what would interest readers would be a crossover of some kind or, or a novel that has some, um, what's the word for it? Something that makes it break out of the pack from just being, here's another shadow novel. I guess for, uh, for readers who, who, or for fans of the shadow, the only, you know, venue or the only platform that they could get as many adventures uh, as the, as they could as they could get their hands on was the comic books. The you know the graphic novels by Matt Wagner and and so on. They did the, the, the Dynamite uh, comics. I think did uh, a line featuring the Shadow. Some of them were better than others. Probably the Matt Wagner ones were were the best. But uh, I haven't, and of course, you know, you, you, you would know more than I do because I haven't heard that there were any plans to actually uh, release uh, any new Shadow novels except the, the James Patterson ones. No, I don't think that there's any plans al- along that line because I think the investment is in, revi- re- in updating these characters 
one because you know James Patterson sells books, and so the Condé Nast will make money, and the characters are introduced to a new generation or a new series of generations. But also, the long game is you know can these characters come into into other media such as films or TV? And I suspect the belief is, and I don't disagree with this, that the Shadow and Doc have a better shot at being major motion pictures if they're modernized. We'll see if that's what happens because it's, it's a very tricky business to, uh, to uh, mount a, a motion picture or a TV program or even an animated show because um, there's a lot of competition out there. And everybody wants to interpret characters in a way that they think works. So that if someone says, let's do this James Patterson shadow, but let's change it. And so, okay, then someone else is changing what's already been changed. And will that work? Will it appeal to an audience? You know, this is why I write books and not screenplays because you can, you can, you can define an audience and you can say, I know what they want. I'll give it to them. Whereas if you're writing a screenplay, it's, it's throwing darts, you know, you got to get the funding, you got to get the right director, the right talent, the right distribution, the right promotion for it to work or not work or sort of work. I mean, the, that shadow movie with Al Baldwin was a good movie. It wasn't a great movie. It didn't motivate anybody to let's to say, let's do a sequel. But that was the plan, a series of shadow films. It just didn't quite come off the way it could have come off, you know, in the way everybody hoped it would come off. And so we haven't had a shadow film in what, 30 years. That's a long time. We have James Bond movies every so many years. Even when there's a drought, it's not more than five years, four years. It's sad. You know, Doc and the Shadow should be in their 20th and 30th films by now or TV shows or whatever. And um, we're not seeing that. So, you know, the opportunity to make these, to keep these characters at the top of the cultural awareness peak, mountain, whatever, it has been lost through, you know, just misadventure and, and, and you know, mistimings and, you know, unfortunate, you know, circumstances like your two best characters have been in two movies and both of them are disappointments. I mean, nobody controls that. It's just how it, it's just how it unfolded. Uh, I, I want to touch upon quickly because I don't want to take too much of your time, but uh, because I know that you, you mentioned in our last conversation that you were, uh, that you had a chance to visit uh, the set when they were making the shadow movie uh, with Alec Baldwin. Okay. Did you get a sense of, because I like the director, uh, Rosan Mulcahy, I think he's, uh, he did Highlander and he's a great visual stylist, but uh, there are problems with the movie. So because you were on the set, did you see something or when you were there, did you get a feel that something was off? No, I thought it was, it was going to be a hit movie, but the thing I noticed during shooting that, explained to me one of the problems with the film is if you recall the the scene with the beryllium sphere rolling around and everybody sort of chasing it or trying to capture it um that was shot three ways um straight 
comedic and somewhere in between, semi-serious, semi-comedic. And the thing you have to understand about motion pictures, which is very critical, is the director is one thing, but the cutter is just as important. The person who cuts the footage together and makes it a movie, because you know, if you film, if you film a scene several ways, the cutter has several choices. And a cutter is going to look at a scene from the standpoint of what's the best, what's the best version of this scene. And, you know, and sometimes some versions don't work. An important thing in a movie is tone. And if in a shadow movie, you would think the tone should be serious, but of course you can have it a little lighter too. You know, the Margot and Lamont relationship can be on the light side. And it was, it had humor in it. Um, when the, whoever cut that film, cut it in a way that the tone was all over the place. It's serious in this scene, it's comedic in this scene, it's in the middle in that scene. And so what you have is a movie that doesn't know what its, you know, what its tone is or even what its audience is. You know, uh, one would expect at that time and now anybody shooting a shadow, shadow film would, would include some humor because that's the hallmark of everything from Indiana Jones to uh, uh, Marvel and DC movies. Well, maybe not DC movies so much, but, you know, people like a certain amount of humor, a little bit of tongue in cheek, as long as it doesn't go too, too, too far. So I think the problem with that film was not with the director or even how they shot it. It's how they cut it and they cut it. So it was a tonal mess, you know, uh, it didn't know it didn't un, it, it didn't take a tone and stay with it. You can have a serious tone with moments of humor, but the beryllium scene was a fairly was a serious scene about a very dangerous situation. And as it was, the version we saw was almost slapstick, and that ruins a movie like that. I get, I got that feeling. Even uh, I was just a kid, but I got the feeling that because the, that movie had some intense scenes, especially yeah, the, the ending. Yeah, the ending was just almost horrific. You know, with the with the mirrors chattering and the basically the the lobotomy that uh, Shiwan Khan goes through. So, but yeah, I get your point. But um, I don't know. It's just a missed opportunity. But I just still love the movie. I I, I you know I just watched it. A good uh, movie. It's a yeah, good it, movie. It's just it's not a, a great movie. movie. You know, yeah. Just... Yeah. Uh, before I let you go, I want to uh, just uh, touch upon your uh, Sherlock Holmes stories because I recently discovered them. But I, uh, because also I'm a huge uh, Sherlock Holmes fan, and whenever I get a chance to read pastiches and, and talk to anyone who who writes good uh, home stories, uh, I, ha I have to ask, ask him about it. So your stories are just fantastic. Uh, I read a couple of them. To be completely honest, reading your other work, because the style is very different, the, the pulp fiction style, because I, I've, I've read a lot of your, of your work. But when I read the Sherlock Holmes stories, it's just a completely different facet of your style. Uh, because you write in, 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 uh, because you capture Conan Doyle's voice uh, to a large degree, you capture the tone, you capture the mood. Uh, and I haven't met 
a lot of uh, writers who grew up on Pulp Fiction and who love Pulp Fiction, who are that into, you know, the Victorian style uh, of writing, especially the, the British, you know, style of writing right. that, that Conan Doyle uh, did so well. So uh, I was just, you know, the, 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 your stories are so entertaining. And, I, and, and um, uh, the, the recent one I read was... Um, the gray seal uh and uh, yes. it actually introduced me and it reintroduced me because i was i knew about jimmy dale the character jimmy dale a little bit but uh, your story actually got me excited about rediscovering his work because his work uh, the, the the frank packard's work who, who originated the, the character of the gray seal jimmy dale uh his work now is in the public domain so you can get the books everywhere online Yes, yes. And uh, your style is just uh, it's just so entertaining, and it's they were they are so uh, well written, as is uh, all of your work. But uh, I just want to, you know, understand uh, because you, you seem to be you have to be a very wide reader to be able to write pastiches of Lovecraft and Walter B. Gibson and Lester Dent and Arthur Conan Doyle. Well, I don't know if that's wide reading because, you know, Sherlock Holmes is almost, it's, if you are, even if you're a pulp fan, it's almost impossible to not encounter Holmes on some level, even if you don't read too many of them. I pride myself in when I write these characters and writing them authentically, but also writing them in the style to the degree I can in, of the original author. To me, that's the challenge and the joy of doing it. And I'm glad, to, you know, it's funny, I've written for a lot of Sherlock Holmes anthologies and I don't have time to read the anthologies I've contributed to. So I have no idea how well my stories stand up against other people's stories. I think you're the first person to say that they're, they're credible because I feel self-conscious as a 22nd, 21st century, what century are we in? 21st century American writing... <laughs> Victorian British stuff because you know it's not my era it's not my time um and I read Sherlock Holmes when I was younger but I didn't really start to read him intensively until I started writing the stories and then I immersed myself in them and I you know I think I do a, a decent job I'm sure there are people who do much I'm sure there are guys in Great Britain doing much better jobs because they they, they won't make some of the mistakes I, I have made in terms of what do you, you know, the fact that they don't have sidewalks in Victorian London, they have a different word and other things. Uh, but I, I, think, I, I think my stories are good. I just don't always understand how good they might be in comparison to other people writing the same stuff. You know, just... Uh... Uh, you know, I'm I'm not a Sherlockian, of course, as uh, as is uh, Mr. David Stewart Davies, who who I, I just I spoke to twice. I interviewed him last year, and I just interviewed him a couple of days ago. Uh, he's one of the you know go-to authorities around the world when it comes to uh, Holmes. Uh, uh, but I am a huge fan and. Uh, I've read a wide range of, of stories and I know my way around uh, Conan Doyle's uh, uh, work. You know what, what a lot of, of, uh, of, uh, of writers of Holmes pastiches get wrong is that they tend to, you know, overdo the language a little bit. 
because because they think that uh, you know it's it's kind of a revisionist uh, tendency because they think that because uh, Conan Doyle's stories took place during the Victorian era and because of course it's it was written by uh, a British writer that his style was like uh, Dickensian almost. Ah, uh-huh. okay. And yeah. of and of course, Conan Doyle was not that kind of writer at all. Even uh, Isaac Asimov uh, called him a sloppy writer. Uh, and of course, I don't agree with with Isaac Asimov. I don't agree with almost anything <laughs> Asimov says. <laughs> but uh, but I'm just uh, this is just an, an extreme kind of opinion about Doyle because Doyle was an amazing writer, Conan Doyle, and he was a stylist. But he was an unfussy writer. He wasn't really uh, into flowery, uh, you know. No, it wasn't. No, so it what you what you get right is that you get the uh, the you know the, the diction and you get the uh, the tone and and of course you you capture the fl- the flavor more or less of the time. But but your your stories are very readable. They are very, you know, they are page turners and and readable and believable in terms of the time period of them. And I read, uh, you know, books by some of the best Sherlockians out there. And uh, the best of them uh, always uh, capture the, 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 the simplicity and the, and the, you know, the, the fluidity and the smoothness of Conan Doyle. Mm-hmm. The worst pastiches are always the, the, the ones written in a flowery way. Uh-huh. So that's what I loved about your stories. And of course, the idea of, of crossovers, which you seem to be, uh, you know, a master at. Uh, and again, the problem with, with the crossovers usually uh, is that it's capturing the tone, you know, because yeah. one style or another usually just takes over. Uh, that's what I loved so much, especially uh, about the uh, about the ring, uh, about the. Oh, yes, 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 yes. I wrote three, I think, John Silence Sherlock Holmes stories, but yes, I know that one. You you're speaking of the. Uh, uh, I don't remember the title I've written. I, I, I'm just <laughs> my fortieth Sherlock Holmes stories. I hope to have it yeah. done this week. But I didn't ever imagine I would write that many. I I want to say this about the fact that I capture. Conan Doyle, other than the fact that that's the part of my objective to write like him uh, and to write his character credibly. Uh, one of my secrets is my mother grew up in Ireland and came to this country when she was a teenager. And she spoke a brand of English that was, you know, compatible with the English of, of the Victorian and post Victorian times. And I think some of my ability to give put words in the mouths of, of Victorian characters is because her speech and her diction, you know, were things I was exposed to, you know, obviously growing up. Uh, I also want to say that I'm working on my second volume of the wild adventures of Sherlock Holmes. It probably won't be out till the end of uh, 2023 because there are other books in front of it, but I'm culling out now the, what I consider to be the best of my previously published Sherlock Holmes stories and the cover has been painted. And this book will probably be out by Christmas of next year. I'm glad to hear that. And uh, I'm actually going to grab a copy because I had it on my to be read list. 
um, uh, your book, the, the 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 Wild Adventures of uh, of Sherlock Holmes, which is available on on Amazon and other uh, stores as an ebook, and uh, they are just delightful. You know, for someone uh, who likes Sherlock Holmes, uh, who, which 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 might be a different audience than than the uh, the, the 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 people who like uh, Doc Savage and The Shadow. Because I think a lot of younger people and a lot of people in general who like the, uh, the Shadow and Doc Savage tend to be, uh, especially from my generation and uh, maybe a, bit, a little bit older and a little bit younger, tend to be people who read comic books. Yeah. Because they get, uh, you know, they, they get the, uh, uh, the common ground and, uh, and the mythology of, of these characters, the larger than life kind of vigilante superheroes, you know, shtick. But I, I guess uh, for the, the Sherlock Holmes audience is a bit different, and I, I really enjoy your work. And for people who like Sherlock Holmes stories and who, like me, finished the canon, uh, you know, the canonical uh, Holmes stories a long time ago, and are always looking for good pastiches, your work is so super fun and very well-crafted, and I look forward to reading all of your uh, Sherlock Holmes stories. Well, thank you very much. That's very kind of you, and it's, it's really good to get that feedback, because as I say, I'm a little bit in the dark in terms of where my, my work ranks against the many other people also doing Sherlock Holmes stories these days. The thing I enjoyed about your stories, again, is that they are very quick, uh, you know, on their feet, and uh, you get the sense that you are having fun writing them. Yeah, yeah, I enjoy writing them. I think I think it's great as a writer to step into the literary shoes of other writers and try to not only emulate their style, but their vocabulary, their point of view. Uh, I hate reading pastiches where someone has just twisted a character into what's comfortable for them to write, as opposed to what they should be writing. Um, Occasionally, I'm asked to contribute to a Sherlock Holmes anthology that might be Sherlock Holmes in the multiverse or Sherlock Holmes steampunk. And I have difficulty wrapping my brain around trying to change Sherlock Holmes into something Conan Doyle never imagined. So I usually skip those anthology invitations because I just, I just don't know that there's a point to do that. I have done a couple of stories. I did one recently. It's not published yet with Sherlock Holmes encounters H.P. Uh, Lovecraft's Cthulhu mythos elements, but I, I kept it uh, more realistic than a typical H.P. Lovecraft story, because I think if you throw Sherlock Holmes into the, a full-blown Lovecraftian story, it just doesn't work as well, because he's, he's not used to the fantastic, he's used to the seeming fantastic. And uh, that story will be, it's called The uh, Horror of the Drowned Souls. And that story will be in a forthcoming Belanger Books anthology, assuming they accept it, which I haven't heard officially, but the anthology was my idea, so I think they probably will accept it. Uh, I know that uh, you have the, uh, the Dark Avenger coming out. Uh, I, I think it's already out, you say, right? It's out in hardcover. Uh, from our, our website, www.adventuresinbronze.com. And I just this morning received the soft cover uh, cover for, uh, from my designer and co-publisher, the tremendously talented Matt Mooring. And I'm going to be uploading that to Amazon. 
today, tomorrow, or the next day and, and punching out a proof. So it will be available uh, on Amazon probably around the first, if not before. And uh, so that book is, is, and it will be available from my website as well. So that book is now about to be put to bed. And I'm very excited about it because it was, it was a chance to take a book I wrote when I was very young and make it the best book it could be. So it's truly a monumental look at the Shadow Magazine and the people and the forces that shaped it. Yeah, I look forward to reading it because you mentioned uh, you mentioned it actually when we talked last year when we were talking about Master of Mystery, uh, your first uh, nonfiction book about the shadow, uh, and uh, I, I've been waiting, you know, for it ever since, and I can't get my I can't wait to get my hands on it. And uh, you also mentioned that you have an upcoming uh, collection of your Sherlock Holmes stories. So anything else uh, coming up? Well, I've just released the second of the Wild Adventures of Cthulhu, collecting uh, my H.P. Lovecraft Cthulhu mythos stories. And I have another Tarzan coming up probably in the spring in which he goes back to Mars and meets John Carter of Mars. Beyond that, I'm thinking of a third shadow book that will collect some of my uh, miscellaneous articles on the shadow, especially ones on the comic book versions of the character. Uh, and isn't that enough? That's a lot of books. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. But, uh, the last time we talked, we we also I also talked about how prolific you are, and uh, and I have because you know I I I, I actually I've actually written twelve books so far. And, uh, I, and I work in publishing and, uh, and I work with writers and screenwriters and so on. So I know how hard it is to actually be prolific. A lot mm. of people don't get how hard it is to actually, uh, you know, uh, maintain the discipline and how, uh, how much discipline it actually requires to write. Not only so much, but also uh, so much of quality. Uh, yeah, maintaining so, uh, the quality is, is, is key because it's, you know, you can get to the point where you can, churn things out but you got to be willing to polish and rewrite to keep the quality up that's very important yeah and uh, before i forget uh, because we were speaking about uh, you know the the dearth of of uh, you know of people who mention the shadow in popular culture now or in the past 50 years or whatever uh, one of my favorite uh, dean Koontz books is called uh, from the corner of his eye and in that book, there is, the, there is this whole plot line about a person who just goes on this sort of walkabout, uh, and he's a huge fan of the shadow. Ah. And, he, and he keeps mentioning the shadow and uh, the shadow books, and I, I think the shadow radio show. It's one of my favorite Dean Koontz books. It's one of his best. It's a big book, but it's, it's, it's an amazing book. And uh, I was very surprised to actually uh, read the uh, you know, uh, to, 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 to read that Dean Kunz is actually a fan of The Shadow. Yeah. What, what's the title of the book? From the Corner of His Eye. Uh, it's, his eye. Yeah, it's, I think it was published uh, 10 years ago or something. It's, uh, it's, getting, it's, getting, it's getting older now, but it's, uh, it's one of his absolute best books. And that whole storyline about the guy who, who just uh, who goes on, on that walkabout is just uh, just so uh, amazing and so heartwarming. So uh, 
I just wanted to give a shout out to Dean Koontz for mentioning the shadow. I'm glad you mentioned it because I've never heard of that. And I thought everything that, that involved the shadow, someone would have mentioned it to me at some point. This is new to me. So that's very good. <laughs> yeah. You know, you, you can tell I'm a huge shadow fan. I never forget when someone pays tribute to the character. And I don't want to take any more of your time. You, you have been very, very generous with me, uh, with your time. Uh, the, the, the last conversation we had, uh, you, you, you also gave me a lot of your time. And this time, you've, you've been even more generous. So I just want to thank you very, very much, Will, for uh, speaking with me today. And uh, I look forward to reading more of your work. Uh, and uh, I hope you, you, uh, you come back again and join me. Oh. I'll be happy to come back, AK. I mean, I enjoyed this this conversation as I did the last one. I like the title of your podcast. The Dark Fantastic is a great title. And, and, and anytime you want to talk about any of my many, 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 many uh, writing endeavors, I'm certainly happy to get on and, and, and go into it with you because you ask some very intelligent questions and you're coming from a, a good place on these characters. So, you know, anytime. Just let me know. <laughs> the weed of crime bears bitter fruit. Crime does not pay. The shadow knows. <laughs> Thanks for listening, and please join me again on another episode of The Dark Fantastic Podcast. Death is a man in black, and he has gone insane, slaughtering the innocent. Only X, an amnesiac who wakes up to find his wife dead beside him, can stop him. Now, X, along with a band of heroes hunting the man in black, have to embark on a terrifying journey through the cursed town of Crofton, and into a haunted house filled with secrets, to find the only thing that can stop death. From A. Kale, the number one best-selling author of Bad Dreams. Coffin X, a terrifying novel of dark fantasy and horror. Now available on Amazon.